Welcome to the Aerospace Advantage podcast. I'm your host, John Slickbaum. Here on the Aerospace Advantage, we speak with leaders in the DoD, industry, and other subject matter experts who explore the intersection of strategy, operational concepts, technology, and policy when it comes to air and space power. So if you like learning about aerospace power, you are in the right place. To our regular listeners, welcome back. And if it's your first time here, thank you so much for joining us. As a reminder, if you like what you're hearing today, do us a favor and follow our show. Please give us a like and leave a comment so that we can keep charting the trajectories that matter to you most. This week, we're going to talk about Space Force Guardians. They're the engine behind delivering critical space power efforts. And make no mistake, what they do is pivotal. At the recent U.S. Space Command leadership change, where General Whiting replaced General Dixon, Vice Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, Admiral Grady, laid it on the line by saying, quote, In my view, space has emerged as our most essential warfighting domain. Integral to our national security, our coalition interoperability, and our global stability. End quote. So, if space is that important, then it's important to ask whether the service is right-sized given what we're asking of it. When we talk about space power, we often think about satellites and launch, but those are simply the hardware portions of the mission. Those tools are useless without guardians to operate them, plus engage throughout the national security enterprise to competently bring the space power view to the table. And the nation doesn't have many guardians. The current authorized end strength stands around 9,400 uniformed personnel and roughly 5,000 civilians. Other service branches have individual bases with more people than that. And by comparison, the next smallest branch of service, the Coast Guard, has 40,000 uniformed members. Up from that is the Marine Corps at 177,000. Further up the list, the Army has 445,000 and the Navy has 338,000 and the Air Force at 320,000 people in uniform. So that's what we're here to talk about today. To answer this question, does the Space Force need more Guardians? Joining me for this conversation is General Kevin Chilton, a three-time astronaut, and he previously commanded U.S. Air Force Space Command plus Strategic Command. He is now on our team at Mitchell at our Space Power Center of Excellence. We also have Major General Thomas Tav Taverney, U.S. Air Force retired, chairman of the Schriever chapter of the Air and Space Force Association, and former vice commander of the Air Force's Space Command. Next, we've got Mitchell's own space expert, Charles Galbraith, who retired at the rank of colonel from the Space Force and last served as the deputy chief technology and innovation officer. Last but not least, we are pleased to host Stu Pettis. He currently directs AFA's STEM education programs and served 29 years as a space operator in the United States Air Force. Well, General Kevin Chilton, Chile, sir, thanks so much for being back on the Aerospace Advantage. Really looking forward to this uh, discussion today. Good to be back with you as always. Got a great uh, group gathered here today. I'm looking forward to it as well. Yeah, we certainly do have a great group and first time on the podcast, Major General Thomas Tav Taverney, sir, thanks so much for making it on the Aerospace Advantage. It's a pleasure to be here, especially anytime I get to hear General Chilt. It's a real pleasure. <laughs> Absolutely, sir. I know we always learn so much from having the uh, general on the show. Really excited. Uh, really, who's honcho in this discussion is our very own Charles Galbraith. So, Charles, welcome back to the Aerospace Advantage. Thanks, Like It's great to be here. This is a, a really powerful team to discuss an important topic facing the Space Force. Yes, absolutely. And like we said in the intro, the last and certainly not least, Stu Pettis. Stu, thanks for being at the studio with us today. Oh, thanks, Luke. Great to be here. All right, General Taverney and Stu, I really want to get started here because you really inspired us to put this episode together based on an op-ed that you wrote for Space News at the end of 2023. And, you know, I try to paint the picture in my intro, but you guys are the experts. So can you help us understand the scale and the scope of what Guardians are juggling today? Yeah, so what happened when the, air, when the Space Force was formed, uh, they were formed because of significant threats that we hadn't been totally prepared for. The uh, evolution of hypersonic and hypersonic glide missiles by the Russians and the Chinese, and now even India, that can be launched from anywhere, from underwater, from on ships, from aircraft, from mobile launchers, and even as China has shown from space itself. So these are systems that can be launched from anywhere in the world at any time. And they also fly low in the atmosphere. 
so they fly deep in space clutter, so they're hard to find. And they're, very, they're relatively dim. This threat is a significant threat, and it's a global threat that we have to have global coverage to be able to find, fix, and track these systems. At the same time, there's been an evolution in, in space warfare as the Russians and the Chinese have significantly advanced the threats to our space systems, including threats from the ground, lasers, laser dazzling, jamming, spoofing, direct ascent threats, as both Russia and China have demonstrated, kinetic with kinetic kills, and co-orbital threats with things like lasers, jamming, and potentially even kinetic threats. And the Chinese recently in 2022 demonstrated the ability to grapple and actually kidnap our satellites. And then the third thing that happens that both Russia and China are moving very fast and they're uh, building new capabilities and having new threats within a two or three year period. So the Space Force is formed to respond to these threats and over the last few years, they have aggressively come up with ways to respond to these threats. Uh, however, these were not foreseen when the Space Force was formed. And so there needs to be a significant increase in manning, probably dollars too, but certainly in manning to be able to handle these new these threats and support the strategy and the architecture that the Space Force has built. Well, sir, thanks for that. And, and Stu, do you want to hop in here? Yeah, just to echo what uh, the general said. Obviously, the Space Force was formed because there's a threat, and I think anyone who's serious on this subject realizes that the next war will probably start in space and cyber. It's they're going to a potential adversary is going to attempt to disrupt the way we fight. And when I was uh, at the Pentagon, when we actually had some of the initial debates, I was seconded to go work on the Space Force planning team. And I remember at the time, the Chief of Staff of the Air Force, General Goldfein, said, "You know, I have eight missions, one of which is space. Space bothers me because I just don't I don't have the time to give the attention it needs." That's why the Space Force was stood up to address this threat and at the same time also to move rapidly to keep pace with it because what we've seen particularly with China is them fielding multiple generations of spacecraft inside of our OODA loop. You know, we might have one family, one system coming out and they've produced entire families of systems. So we've really, they've got to move fast and they've got to address this threat and it's just critical to how we want to fight wars. Yeah, no, that's a great point. And, you know, it, really breaking it down, it seems like there's three major work areas for Guardians right now. You know, the pre-existing missions, the need to secure those capabilities from threats, you know, which is really why the Space Force was established, and then new missions. Is that about right? From, from my perspective, yes, very much so. Yes, you know, I, you know, the Space Force has to do acquisition, and it has been launch, satellite, on-open satellite operations, training, and however you group together space domain awareness with SSA and that space tracking management. So those are, were existing missions, always been missions, but they have changed substantially due to the new architectures the Space Force is proposing. And then there are the new missions, you know, tactical surveillance, reconnaissance and tracking, XGO missions, including cislunar, a move towards dynamic space operations so we can respond to these threats, COCOM, expanding COCOM component support, and as we have moved to these systems that are collecting a lot of data, we're also moving towards the, the requirement to perform analysis on this data. And so we'll need more data analysts. Gotcha. Again, great points. And you know, I really want to get General Chilson's view. Like you said, General Tav, you know, we always learn so much from him. Yeah, I really have to ask you, sir, how does what Tav and Stu outlined compared to what was occurring in Air Force Space Command when you commanded it? Well, it, it, there's certainly been a sea state change when uh, I was in command of Air Force Space Command and, and even in command of U.S. STRATCOM where we had the COCOM responsibilities for space. We had not recognized the offensive mission as something that was important to us. We had not come forward as a nation and said that space was a contested environment, though every commander since the stand-up of Air Force Space Command anticipated this and we certainly witnessed it when i was at stratcom when we saw the chinese do a direct ascent asap test in 2007 so we kind of had our head stuck in the sand for quite a few years even after i retired and then uh, finally we became uh, admitted to ourselves all these new mission sets that needed to be taken on by either the Air Force Space Command or the Space Force, and the decision was made to move into the Space Force. 
that are now requiring an additional manpower to to enable. Uh, that said, I can say I considered us short of personnel even back before we crossed that Rubicon. Although we only had the enabling missions, we had no offensive authorities, so no offensive capabilities were developed, nor defensive. We still didn't have enough people in the command to do the things that every other command does, which is to be to do the training and integration and wargaming and exercises with the combatant commands that you really would want to do with a space force. And, and part of the reason for that is I think there was a lack of appreciation that all the systems in then Air Force Space Command and continuing today with the Space Force that provide the enabling capabilities, whether it's missile warning, uh, GPS, over-the-horizon communications, weather, et cetera, those missions are being done every day. So, so you have to have excess capacity in those areas if you want, and that's not just in personnel, it's also in equipment. If you really want to support an integrated war game or a COCOM's uh, annual exercise, in the past, you know, as a STRATCOM commander, I would turn to my space component, General Shelton, and I'd say, we're going to have our big global thunder exercise, and I want space to play, and I want your command and control center out of Vandenberg to participate, knowing full well the reality that they were fully employed just doing day in and day out operations. It would be like turning to a fighter squadron that was in wartime, fully engaged and saying, well, hey, we need you to support this exercise or, or this combatant commander war game uh, simultaneously. You just can't do it. So we need to have not only enough people to do the missions that are ongoing every day, you need to have enough people and equipment. And by that, I mean identical command and control centers that people can fall in on and train in an integrated fashion with the COCOMs, the regional COCOMs around the world, and actually train like you plan to fight, like we do with every other um, system in the United States Air Force. Um, and so there, there were shortcomings back then, but there was no compelling reason to change because we had not admitted to the reality that space had become a contested domain. We're there now, and so now we have an opportunity to get it right, I think. Charles, you lived this. Uh, you wrapped up your career as a guardian. So what does a surge in demand look like at the unit and headquarters level? Yeah, thanks, Slick. So yeah, I can't stress enough one of the elements that General Chilton mentioned, and that is, you know, it's like asking a fighter squadron that's already deployed and engaged to go ahead and do an exercise. And a lot of people forget that for the Space Force, we're basically deployed in place. We do the mission every day the same way we would if we're in a wartime or in a peacetime environment. Certainly the tempo would increase during a wartime environment just to an extent, but they're doing that mission day in and day out. And then when we stood up the Space Force, we knew that there was going to be additional requirements to define relationships, to support these exercises that General Chilton talked about. At the headquarters level, I, I can tell you that, you know, for example, I, I don't know of a single person at the headquarters that wasn't at least 110% saturated with activities day in and day out. Just to give you an example. There's, in the Air Force, there's this structure called Group Board Council, and it's how we coordinate activities through the chain of command. And it basically, it starts at an action officer, an 06 level, and then you go to you know, a one-star to two-star level, and then you finally get approvals at the three- and four-star levels. Well, depending on the topic, when I was on the headquarters staff at the Space Force, I might go to all three levels of the same meeting because there wasn't anybody else to go to them. And we, we couldn't afford the manpower to go after each one of those at, at different levels. So on, on the one hand, I got quite a bit of depth of understanding on that topic. But on the other side, I ended up going to three times the amount of meetings that most of my counterparts were at, at any particular level. Um, and that's just one of those things that everybody in the Space Force, we, we knew that we were task saturated. We're trying to do our best. And we knew that we, we wanted to be lean uh, and super efficient. But we all knew. 100% across the board that we weren't going to get it right from the beginning. And that's why constant reevaluation and reassessment of where we are and where we need to go is so critical. 
Yeah, it's that's really interesting. And then it's also just from a thought process, right? If you have the same person going to three different levels of, of meetings, you're you're not getting any really check and balance or, you know, kind of adult in the room perspective either. So it's really interesting what what you experienced there. And I now I have to ask you this. So what are the consequences of stretching guardians so thin? You know, when we talk about national security at a macro level and in general children, you know, I'd like to get started with you again, because you are a COCOM commander. So what would the effects be at this top uh, top tier level? Well, it's like, I'll, I'll go back to the importance of training like you plan to fight. And as a COCOM commander, when we do our major exercises, you look to your component commanders, those who would conduct warfare at the operational level of war, to fully participate in the exercise, just as they were, would do in time of conflict. And, and so if, if you don't have the, the right level of manning to do that at the service component level, then the COCOM's never going to have confidence that you're going to be able to perform in time of crisis or wartime. It's as much a matter of building trust. And again, I'll go back and say it's not just people. You also need the facilities to do that. If there's only one space operational control center and it's fully engaged day in and day out, it's not going to be able to be used to participate with a COCOM, whether it be regional or the U.S. Space Command, in their exercises. And so you're not going to know what's really going to happen when the balloon goes up. So, and you're not going to develop that trust. It's so important to victory. Yes, sir. Great point. And, you know, I got to ask Stu, you know, how do you think the impact is felt at the headquarters level? I mean, you know, there are very few Space Force general officers and, you know, it's great that people want the Space Force to be lean, but it's also got to be effectively sized to engage with the rest of the DOD, right? Oh, definitely. And I had some flashbacks when Charles was talking there. You know, actually, let me start with a, a comment I hear sometimes from friends and they'll say, you know, the Air Force did this mission for decades with just this amount of manpower. And I always, it, that's an interesting argument, but totally irrelevant because there's a big difference between being a major command embedded within a service and being a service headquarters. And, you know, the, you know service, a MAGCOM interface is really with the service headquarters. Maybe they might have some crosstalks with other MAGCOMs. And, and certainly in the case of Air Force Space Command, they'll talk to the COCOM. But a service headquarters has to inter, interface with Congress, the Joint Staff, OSD, other COCOMs other than Space Command, the Secretary of the Air Force staff, and the Joint Staff. And all of these parts have to be, you know, given attention. When Congress calls, you know, you you have to get across the river and explain, answer the congressman's question. And so I think we were jaded a little bit by our Air Force Space Command experience. And I think we downsized, we underestimated how much that would, how critical that uh, interface would be. And so you look today, there's a single Space Force general officer on the joint staff, That's and he's only a one-star. There's a handful of colonels here and there. There's almost no representation in COCOMs other than um, uh, Space Command. Now, one thing we didn't anticipate when we're, we're planning the Space Force is service components, and there's an obligation. If you're, if you're a COCOM commander, you get your best military advice from uh, your service component commanders. And in the case of several of them, there's this, you know, uh, General Mastelier at an end of PACOM, but all of his peers... The other service component commanders are all colonels. And so I think the impact is, and you know, when Charles was talking about going to all three levels of meetings, I think probably the final one is a three-star level meeting and you're showing up representing your services in 06. Now, everyone's going to be gracious and, and collegial, but what that really means is you're not going to be proactive. You're not really going to have the, the weight of gravitas in that meeting to push a service position. So you go to the meeting, you take notes, you go back to the three-star and then that individual has to go in and fight the fight for you. So it really, it puts, a, it puts the burden on those few general officers we have and doesn't really in that, in empower our staff. Yeah, that, that makes a ton of sense and I'm sure has to be just be massively frustrating. And that's a good segue for my next question, Charles. You know, how is the small size impacting the new mission growth areas and the need to effectively staff them? And, you know, to this end, you've written about the operational requirements that are emerging as adversaries are increasingly contesting operations on orbit. And you also just released a new study about cislunar. So, you know, these missions that really didn't exist a few years ago, but now they're highly important. Yeah, that's right, Slick. I don't think we fully accounted for th this new mission growth when we established the Space Force, and that's okay. Like I said, it's important to reassess, but you hit it on the head earlier when you talked about three basic buckets of, of activity. What we were doing before, okay, so we've got the manpower to do that, that transferred from other services, but then also 
securing those capabilities against that growing threat. That requires additional resources. And, you know, we've seen the establishment of things like the 75th ISR squadron. That's great. So there has been some additional growth, but not enough to truly get after the threat from an offensive and defensive perspective. And then you add on additional mission sets like what I'm advocating for Cislunar, which is a growth of about 200 additional guardians focusing on the Cislunar mission and getting to the moon and supporting the civil and commercial activities there. There's also the ground-moving target indication that's going to move from airborne platforms to spaceborne platforms to, to do that surveillance and reconnaissance that, that Tav mentioned earlier. And of course, Stu and, and Tav and General Chilton have all mentioned the importance of integrating space into the combatant commander's plan, not just at U.S. Space Command, but, but all the combatant commands. So all of these new mission areas that didn't exist when we were just a MAGCOM, but now exist as a service, really drive us to increase the size of the Space Force. You know, we did everything we could when we established the Space Force to be lean and efficient, like I mentioned. We tried to do away with the group board council structure that we, you know, had from the Air Force. And that's great if we can do that inside the Space Force, but we still have to interact with all of the other services and the, the joint staff, and they have those structures. And therefore, we've got to be able to match uh, that, that posturing and support to those meetings. Yeah, great perspective. And, you know, Stu, we always hear mission first people always. And how are you seeing this impact guardians on the individual and family level? Oh, yeah, great question. Really, I, there's that dreaded phrase we always heard, I'm going to, you're going to have to do more with less. Well, no, you're still going to do the same amount of work just with less people and less time. And so what I saw in person, I experienced this personally, is you just had less time to work a critical process. And you'd probably give it, you know, 40% effort. And then you move on to the next task or, you know, you, it, the building is going to, meaning the Pentagon is going to move at its own battle rhythm and you got to comply with that. You can't get an extension. So you got to get the work done. And the result was you just produced lower quality work because you didn't have the staff to support you. You didn't have the time to get after all these tasks. You couldn't divide tasks. You're going to meeting and, you know, you, General uh, Saltzman has discussed getting outstaffed by other services. And it's simply a matter of mass that you can put against a problem. And if you like the CSO, and in this case I do, like both of them, you want to produce good work and you never want to have them be disappointed in the quality of work you're producing. Yeah, let me just uh, jump in there a bit, Slick, uh, and, and sort of amplify some of Stu's comments. Being on that staff for, for two years, what he's saying about you don't have a chance to get it to 100% right is, is spot on because you're going to take your best swing at it. And you might get a, an 80% solution. And typically, when you were able to bounce that off of other folks and are able to spend some additional time to refine it, you, you can improve it. But with the Space Force the way it was and, and still is, you've got to really try your darndest that first time out to get it right because you know you're not going to have an additional opportunity to, to cycle back. And, and that has a strain on the individual guardians and they're spending more time in the office and maybe less time with their families. And, and that's going to put strain on, on guardians. And while the Space Force enjoys a position right now where retention is not an issue, and they've got more applicants than they need to induct, over time, that strain is going to wear. And it will become a, a factor, I, I believe, in the long-term retention if we're not able to adjust the manning and actually relieve some of the burden on those overstretched guardians. Yeah, th there's some really good points to unpack there, and I'm just kind of going to boil it down to I'm sure the audience and other people are asking the simple question of why, you know, why are we facing this problem? Why wasn't the Space Force created with a bigger end strength number? And, and, you know, wasn't that the point of standing up a new service to really double down on the, you know, with the resources that we need to, you know, dedicate to national security space? Well, I'll jump in there first, uh, Slick. First of all, when we set up the Space Force, which happened very rapidly, and I would argue without enough preparation before the trigger was pulled on it, we didn't really know what was going to be required to pick up the new mission sets. And as has already been discussed, <clears throat> there's been a rapid growth in the new mission sets. The whole concept of disaggregation and these huge multi-satellite LEO constellations that have to be operated, defended, and um, we're not completely in concrete yet. The ISR missions, moving GMTI to space, the imaging and SIGINT missions that the Space Force will have to pick up in support of the combatant commanders regionally 
and eventually the tactical warfighter were not baked yet. And let alone the offensive capabilities that would have to be developed for electronic warfare, counter-satellite operations, denial of adversaries' use of their constellations. It was just so immature early on. There was no real way to say, hey, we need this many people and justify that requirement. And at the end of the day, every new manpower position has to be matched to a requirement. Uh, We just don't create positions and billets to to get numbers up. They they have to have a mission set that's well-defined and justified. And that's where, you know, the debates come out when you start looking at budgets. You have to have good, solid rationale or else they're not going to get funded. And manpower positions are one of the three key elements that are funded in the Palm every year in the Department of Defense. So I think what we're hearing today is that as we're becoming more mature in understanding requirements and as missions grow, the force has to grow in parallel with it. And it's it in my experience, it never seems to happen as quickly as you would like it to happen, but the hard work needs to be done in laying out requirements, manpower requirements associated with mission and capabilities and training requirements and war fighting requirements, and, and then you fight the fights to, to grow the end strength. If I, I can make another comment too about working in the Pentagon, when you, the number of general officers any service has is a function of the total end strength, uniform end strength of the service. There's a, a rule associated with the number of brigadier generals you can have, and then that narrows down up to the numbers of four stars. And frankly, the Space Force is inverted. That the need, if, if you were to fill all the positions with equivalency in the air staff and the joint staff and in the COCOMs that the other services had, well, shoot, you'd have a very top heavy force. And so there needs to be some consideration going forward on, on how some of these very important positions that Stu has talked about in the Pentagon, where you know the big policy and budget decisions are made how they're going to be a man. But to think that there are always going to be equivalencies in every one of these meetings, I, I just don't see how that happens. And I don't think it would be healthy for the force, by the way. And Tabs, sir, you want to hop in here? Yeah, I, you know, I think one of the things that's really changed, from, another one of the things that's changed from the formation of the Space Force is that they have now developed a response to these threats. And they've done it by having resilient architectures, which have proliferated con- uh, constellations you know, moving down from GEO to LEO and NEO, which requires a lot more satellites. They're accelerating the pace of launch and leveraging a commercial market, but the numbers of launches that we're having over last year and this year is probably something that wasn't foreseen when the Space Force was formed. Incorporating commercial capabilities into the DOD, tapping into the commercial space reserve, is something that I don't think we saw coming until the Ukraine conflict. And so these changes in how the Space Force has responded is significantly changing existing missions. Like in acquisition, we do an acquisition every 10, 12 years. Now, if we're moving to two and three year cycles, we're doing acquisitions on two and three year cycles. So we have five to six times the number of acquisitions that we had before. These also have to support TRRs, CDRs, PDRs. And so we have six times the number of those type of uh, support meetings since things are moving in two or three year cycles and this, the Space Force needs to have some oversight of this. They need more technical interchange meetings. So the pressure on the staff, we have nowhere near enough staff to do the acquisition job to acquire today's architecture, which wasn't foreseen back when the Space Force was formed. Launch has increased and we didn't foresee that then. And with all these rockets going up, we need more people to handle the launches. You know, that goes to satellite operations, too. As we go to these proliferated constellations, I don't think we've yet seen the complexity and the impact on satellite operations as we have multiple different communication transport layers, cross links, down links, and multiple payloads, 200 payloads or so on orbit, transmitting data between them registering these satellites as they pass by at low Earth orbit, 10 minutes later, getting the information to the next satellite, the impact on satellite operations is going to be considerable too. 
And without increasing the number of satellite operators we have, I think this will end up falling between the cracks. And then this all comes down to training. We, we can't do all these things, acquisition, launch, satellite operations, without increasing the, the amount of training we have so that people can do this job properly. And that's just the existing missions, and that's not even considering the new missions. Uh, yes, like so this is Stu. So I think uh, going back to the question about how did we get here, I, I think all military people are familiar with the expression, you know, uh, no plan survives first contact. The And as General Chilton highlighted, I, I can attest to this, there wasn't a lot of time really from the, the initiation of planning until the, when the uh, president signed the NDA creating the uh, Space Force. So the, the plan was put together. It was pretty good, but they've had now four years of experience. And, uh, you know, some things that were not foreseen, uh, the service components were not foreseen, so that got taken out of hide. Um, we were not talking cislunar and a lot of these other mission sets. I mean, it was, I think, first time someone mentioned cislunar to me, I, I be honest, I kind of chuckled a little bit. And I've certainly got religion based on, you know, many Charles beating me up over it. So I, they put together a decent plan. They've had time to kind of uh, flesh it out. And I think we're now seeing where the planning fell short. And so then this happens all the time. It's no knock on anybody involved in it. Lord knows we tried our best, but the time now is, you know, to, to reassess where we are and address some shortfalls. Yeah, Slick. So what General Chilton and Stu said is we stood up the Space Force really rapidly, but I want to add that it was also overdue. Let's not forget that back in 2000, there was this commission that, that looked at the threats to national security space and made some recommendations. So back in 2001, there was a recommendation to eventually get to a separate service. And in fact, back in 2015, there was a legislative proposal to do exactly that, to establish a space core. And, and I was in OSD space policy at the time, and we were part of the discussion of, of what that new service might look like. And there were a lot of different models that we, we examined. We, we thought about a core like the Marine Corps. We thought about uh, a core like the uh, Air, Army Air Force Corps. We thought about uh, organizations like SOCOM. We thought about missile defense agency type uh, roles as well. And we thought about having a combatant command. And we thought about not having a combatant command. And then when it came time and the, the legislation came in, it was almost like we said, okay, we're going to do all of the above. And what we have is the standup of a combatant command, continuation of the Space Development Agency, which is very much that MDA model, the establishment of a new service, but within the Department of the Air Force. So there, there were a lot of those aspects that, that we pulled together. And the, the idea that we're going to leverage a lot of great support from the Department of the Air Force to do the things that we didn't necessarily need to have dedicated resources for within the Space Force staff, I think we're beginning to reexamine that. And certainly we're seeing things like the standup of a legislative liaison office and a public affairs office. And, you know, there may be other responsibilities, too, that we want to say, you know what, we need folks that are no kidding dedicated to the space element of that mission set. And I think that's just part of that continuation as we move forward. So, yes, it was stood up fast, but let's not forget it was overdue. And Charles, if I could, that was one of the assumptions we made that I think they disproved. The idea was, well... Space has been embedded in the Air Force, therefore there won't be this extra workload. You can share an LL and a PA. And what we found is with two service chiefs sharing the same function, it's a disservice to both. And it's an undue burden on that staff that now has to you know, support two service chiefs. So I think we disproved that one. I think LL has been addressed, but public affairs and the staff staff is need to be representative as well. Yeah, you can only carry uh, one person's water or half a person's water twice. And that's where we kind of are right now. So definitely need to grow that area. Like I'd be happy to pile on and agree with one thing that Charles said, but also disagree with another. You know, even when we had the combatant commander mission uh, for space at Stratcom, after they stood down U.S. Space Command and moved the mission over there, when I looked around my headquarters, although we had some excellent space professionals in there who knew the mission, you could count them on one hand. There just wasn't the corpus of knowledge, of uniform knowledge and experience that I felt we needed to do the kind of planning one would need in the event of a conflict in space. Now, mind you, as I said before, administrations, multiple administrations, refused to look at space as a contested domain. So we never had the rationale or the justification to grow these capabilities. And by capabilities, I mean people, expertise. And whether that's at a COCOM headquarters or 
on a staff in the Pentagon has been brought up to legislative liaisons, the programming elements, et cetera. Um, you just don't grow those overnight, but you have to create the positions and mature people and bring them up into those positions. And I think there's good rationale for it. Um, I, the only thing I would disagree with you, Charles, on is to say that uh, it was overdue. Although I agree it was overdue, it couldn't have been done any faster until there was a new mission. And the new mission came when we declared space as a contested domain and we realized we were going to have to fight in this domain. Because up to that point, I didn't hear anybody complaining about what the Air Force did in delivering enabling capabilities to the warfighters around the world, whether it be in the development of SIBRs, UPS, et cetera. That all came out of Air Force Space Command and the United States Air Force. But that command was never sized for the new mission sets that overnight the Space Force was told to take on. And that's where we are today. I think another thing that happened is that the speed of war has fantastically changed. The speed of threats are have escalated, and the speed of the next war will be lightning. I think Stu said, you know, that there probably wouldn't be another war without space being the first uh, battleground. And I think that's true. And that battleground could be that that war in space could be 24, 48 hours, maybe longer, but it will be fast. And so the speed of war and the speed of how space, the Space Force, and actually all the other services are going to have to uh, respond has changed significantly. Absolutely. And, you know, gentlemen, I have to ask, where do we go from here? Because we really did a great job of explaining that why question. And, and, you know, who owns the levers that can grow the Space Force and strength? You know, Charles said something that really struck a nerve where, you know, where there are more applicants than spots that they're allowed to fill. So obviously there are folks that want to do this job and want to serve in this capacity. So General Chilton, let's get started with you. Well, as the former Air Force programmer, actually, we, I was called the hated programmer, the guy who had to put together the, the palm every year to uh, staff up for uh, the chief's and secretary's approval. Uh, I'll go back and say when it comes to manpower, uh, you have to establish valid requirements for it and, and write those down and fight and defend for them. And there's really two organizations responsible for doing that. One is the Space Force, the service. And the other is the U.S. Space Command, the, the combatant commander. The combatant commander has an integrated priority list. The combatant commander is chartered to be prepared to conduct operations, fight, and win as necessary in his or her domain. And in that regard, has great insight into what uh, his or her shortfalls are in both capabilities and manning. Uh, and the services are the, in this case, the Space Force has the expertise to know and also come up with requirements that they need to present the forces necessary for victory and for deterrence. And so it, it's those two organizations, I think, working together to come up with the um, rationale for the growth in manpower to support the various mission sets, the new mission sets that uh, have come on board and has been pointed out um, by Stu and Charles, it goes beyond just uh, the work in the trenches outside the Pentagon. It also includes the trenches within, inside the Beltway in Washington, D.C., in the Pentagon, uh, on Capitol Hill, uh, and in the executive branch to art clearly articulate the needed uh, manpower to do the mission so that those budgets can be approved. General Tavani, uh, if you were advising General Saltzman on this, what would you offer on how to outline the challenge? I mean, there wouldn't be a solution unless people knew something needs attention. Well, again, I think General Saltzman probably understands the challenges that he has and the changes in current missions and the additional missions. And, you know, he's certainly put forth C-notes talking about moving to dynamic space operations and so so and, and as well as US Space Command. So I think they understand the challenge. I think it's a daunting task, and General Chilton probably knows this way better than me, to say I need four thousand people or I need five thousand more people. That's a daunting task to go and fight that battle. 
even though it's true that you need them, it's a tough battle to fight. So I think General Chilton said his best is that we, we need to have a really strong, well-thought-out story of how many people we need and what missions and why. And, and so, I, you know, I, I think it's a winnable battle because I think Congress, you know, supported the, the, the founding of the Space Force, and I think they want Space Force to do a good job and the right job for the country. Uh, and I think with the right story, uh, that's a, that, that's a, probably a winnable battle to get the, the positions you need. Uh, and the, the alternative is a disaster, right? If we don't have enough positions to do the jobs the Space Force has to do, there'll be stretched programs and not fast enough decisions to fight at the speed of the next war. So, gentlemen, what do you say to those who talk about the cost of the extra manpower? I mean, we're stuck with defense spending caps. So given that, plus inflation, we are looking at lean times ahead. And the Space Force is really going to have to make a strong case for this end-strength growth because it's coming at the cost of something else in the DoD enterprise. So, Charles, do any thoughts there? Yeah, absolutely, uh, Slick. So when it comes to the investment that's required to, to get the Space Force that we need, uh, let's not lose sight of, of what we're trying to do with the establishment of the Space Force. We're, we're trying to uh, counter a, a growing threat, a threat that our adversaries uh, and competitors like China um, view as an Achilles heel, that if they can take that action to deny us a space capability, they can then achieve their terrestrial objectives, their political objectives. Uh, and, and we can talk at length uh, about what those objectives are in terms of China becoming a, a global leader. But what we're really talking about is deterring that conflict of staying in this competition phase. And that's why the theory of competitive endurance that General Saltzman laid out is so important. But it's critical that we deter that next conflict. And and so what's the cost if we don't invest uh, sufficiently in the manpower and capabilities that we need? Well, then the deterrent posture that we have as a nation is decreased. The threat of conflict is increased, and some of those national interests that we have become at risk. And so I don't think we need to be asking ourselves, well, boy, I don't know if I can spend the $250 million a year that Charles is talking about for cislunar. Well, what's the cost if China establishes a regime on the moon that we don't like? Or if they're able to deny us a space capability that allows them to attack Taiwan or take some other action? Uh, what is the cost then? And, you know, we've seen in other areas like hypersonics where we've had a technical advantage and then we coast and an adversary like Russia or China can then catch up or even surpass us. And so when it comes to what's the cost, I think we have to look at, well, what's the cost if we don't do anything? And I think that's far greater. I I view these investments to increase the space force and, and create the service that we need as you know, pennies on the dollar in terms of what would cost if we don't do this and, and the ramifications for you know international peace and, and stability. Yeah, just to pile on and maybe summarize what you just said, Charles. I've had the opportunity to speak at a couple of Memorial Day events, and I always say, you know, you don't want to right size your military to win a war twenty one seventeen. If you have to fight, you want to win one hundred and fifty to nothing. But even better than that is to have a force that's so credible and so mean that they look across the line and say, I don't want any of that, so perhaps I'm going to stop what I'm doing. And that's how I always explain deterrence. I, I, you know, I don't think that the bill is really that astronomical. I think we look at new missions. I mean, you add a new mission, you should, and you're not taking any mission away. Well, that's going to have to be an additive. You're going to have operators for that. And, you know, the generals have kind of talked about that, you know, operators, that includes intel, because you need to understand the threat that system might face, but also the training and then the cyber as well. I think at the service headquarters level, you'll notice I never said general once. I always talked about representation, and I think we have an opportunity there. We've not talked about civilians. There is a not a lot of SESs or senior civilians at the space staff level, and that's an opportunity. I, I, you know, there's certain facts of life. It takes four years to, uh, to make a captain. It takes 20-something years to make a general. But we can go and recruit the folks we would need for the Space Force to kind of interface at those levels to really provide that expertise that we can't grow overnight. And so, I, you know, I think if uh, we asked the Space Force, you know, w- what would you need? I think the bill would probably be surprisingly low. Um, and, and still, I mean, the space staff is maybe, a, I think the joke was it's 20% the size of the air staff, but they still get 100% of the taskers. 
So, uh, yeah, they have to move up a little bit. Yeah. And, you know, Stu, I got to ask you this because, you know, you used to be a career field manager for space professionals. So if we got the wish and you were given the extra manpower, how would you suggest it be allocated? Yeah. So uh, General Chilton got to be the hated programmer. I was a hated career field manager for the space operators, or at least those people that did get the assignment they wanted. I was a hated CFM. So I kind of outlined it as well. I think, you know, any new in-strength should first and foremost go to those new missions. They've stood up some missions. There's a unit now that does space domain awareness and cislunar, and it is woefully undermanned for the mission set they've been given. So let's right-size some of those units. Let's uh, get the manpower we need for the new missions coming online. But let's also invest in training. Let's invest in intel. Let's defend those systems with cyber. And then, as General Tavernieri has mentioned, you know, if I'm, it's we're asking our acquisition professionals to move at a pace that they've not done in the past. You know, while you're fielding a new system, you need to already be probably far along on the next system replacing it. If we're going to get inside that OODA loop that, in particular, China has done, so I'd kind of really focus on that first. I think the uh, headquarters need some right sizing. There needs to be representation at COCOMs other than U.S. Space Command. I think the SAF staff needs some representation, better representation from the Space Force, and then you know Joint Staff and OSD. There, you, we have it, part of being a service is you're there to represent your service perspective. And you know I love all my joint brothers and sisters. My brother from another mother is a Green Beret in the Army, but I've forgotten more about space than he knows, and just as he is, knows more about special operations than I will ever know. So we've got to be there in person, representing our service equities, explaining the domain and how we're going to fight in the domain. Yeah, well, this leans into my next one. You know, there are just a few options really to get the force size right. You know, you can increase military billets like we've been talking about, hire more civilians, leverage more guard and reserve. You know, I guess the question is, what is really the right way forward? Because right now it seems that the Space Force has a lot of talent resident in the Air Guard, and we depend on that a lot. And it's obviously, you know, been a contentious issue with the administration opposing the stand-up of a Space Guard. Uh, In so many ways, Congress supports it, and, you know, the services can't speak out of turn, but we all know they need to preserve the capability and at a cost they can afford. So what are your thoughts on this, Charles and General Trillin? I know that Mitchell has written about this a few times. We're talking about having an ability to fight a war in space, maneuver direct fires, to perform satellite operations, to support warfare. I think those are inherently military functions. And so we, while you know, you can support some things with contractors and, and civilian positions, even though they're part of the military. I think there are some things we'll need uh, guardians to do because there'll be uniquely guardian requirements to make rapid decisions that are significant. So, you, as you point out, we're in a, an interesting time here where we have members of the Air National Guard doing space missions. Previously, they were air guard but associated with air force space command so there wasn't a chain of command issue here when they were doing their national missions or getting the organized training equipped support they needed but suddenly now we have airmen doing space missions in the air guard and that's part of the reason we stood up space force was to consolidate all the expertise under this new space service there's been discussion about standing up a, a space guard. And as you pointed out, there's been resistance to doing that. There's also recently discussions about have just come out in the NDAA. And I think there's a lot of probably more work to be done to flesh out the Congress's intent and how one might implement it to have a part-time force, which sounds more like a reserve air reserve force in the air force, a, Space Reserve Force, where you could have citizen guardians who can come in and out of the workforce and and into uniform, just as the Air Reserve uh, does for the United States Air Force. How that all uh, pans out, I'm not sure. But I do think it's important to have unity of command. I do think that the guardsmen, the Air Guardsmen today that are doing the missions, the space missions, need to be aligned under the Space Force. Now, whether that's as a guard unit or a reserve unit, I think is open for debate. But one thing is certain, there's a tremendous amount of expertise in those units. And if we don't take advantage of that expertise and we start all over by recruiting new 
individuals into that, it's going to take years until those units are as proficient as they are today. Yeah, General Shelton, I, I agree with you 100% on the unity of command and, and unity of effort, really. So how, how can we make sure that all of that talent is heading in the same direction towards the same objectives? And whether that's a, a guard or reserve, I, I'm really excited at the ability for guardians to move from part-time to full-time status. I think that opens up a lot of possibilities for career advancement, as well as for a, a better balance between work and life. So I'm excited by that. And if that can somehow influence this guard discussion as well to, to maybe, you know, calm the waters a little bit and say, hey, we can still do all of the above. I think that's important. But basic fundamentals of unity of effort, utilization of that talent and increasing flexibility for the service to accomplish the mission. With those three as, as the, the guiding principles, I, I think we can solve this. Tab, I'd ask you, you might know a little bit more of the history of why we even had a guard units doing Air Force Space Command unit uh, missions. My sense was we just could never get the money to palm for the positions and and the guard was willing to do it. Well, you know, it was that and more. Is that the, we When we had like a remote job, let's say in you know the middle of Florida, we didn't have any military bases and we required technical expertise, a guard unit could establish an organization have consistency. Their people would be there for five, 10, 15, 20 years. So they could grow significant, deep technical expertise. They didn't need a base, you know, a base to support them. And so they could perform functions that required deep technical knowledge and that knowledge retained over a long time in areas that we didn't have in that time, Air Force bases, now Space Force bases. So they did a lot of important missions for us back when General Jilton was the commander. And we'd think through all these missions, you know, we always did, is it best with the guard? Is it best with active duty? Is it best with the reserve? I, I don't think General Chilton ever thought that all of those units didn't report to him. Everybody doing the space mission, when he was the commander, reported to him. And I think the guard units did that. The reserve units did that. And where it was most appropriate for a guard they did it. When it was most appropriate for the reserve, they did it. When it was most appropriate for active duty, they did it. So I think it was a holistic look at it, and we made those decisions based on the mission, the location, how much technical expertise we wanted, and where we could find it. And gentlemen, this is Stu, if I could just pile on. So I have uh, some scar tissue. I've been a uh, big proponent of the Space National Guard. Really, the capabilities that we get from them, not necessarily how they're organizationally aligned, but in particular, the electronic warfare units, that's a surge capacity, which we need in time of war. And we also found that when we had the active duty unit going through an upgrade, you know, we saw the man a patch chart where we're deploying forces downrange. And so the guard stepped up and was able to fill those deployments for us, which allowed the active duty unit to, uh, to refit and bring on new equipment. So they really stepped up. And as Charles mentioned, it was also a great way to retain talent because especially, you know, active duty, you know, life happens you know, the, the spouse might not want to, might not want to move again, or you might have a family situation in Florida. I knew that one came up several times. And so we could say, Hey, great. Why don't, let's talk about the national guard. We retain those folks who might have four five, six years of experience. And you know, it, it's, we can call on it in time of war. So the capability certainly needs to be retained and it's, you know, we don't need it 24 seven, but boy, we need it. But uh, Stu, um, is there any, reason it has to be guard and not reserved? I, I, you know, I think the part-time is, it would probably satisfy it a bit. Uh, the only difference is, you know, the reserves and space were never unit equipped. They were kind of, they had their, they didn't own their own equipment. They fell on equipment that the active duty unit operated. In the case of the guard units, they actually have their own equipment. So you could do it, but they would have to, someone's going to have to be there 24 seven, maintaining the equipment, securing the equipment, things like that. So it would require an in-strength growth on the active duty side, it would be my guess. And then you could surge in on the weekends. And there's some models actually within the, act, within the Guard today where they have active associate units, which would probably work. But long answer to a short question, I don't think it necessarily requires a Guard, but it was just kind of what we inherited, sir. Yeah, that's my sense. And that's why I think this new language tabled in the NDAA perhaps has a solution going forward that uh, stops this, uh, you know, entrenchment on opposite sides on whether or not we should have a space guard, but we, we get the right answer, which is we retain the expertise that's resonant 
in those guard units that are doing space missions today, and we integrate them into the force, and they still uh, retain uh, those members of the units that are part-time, still are part-time, and those members of the units that are ARC members that are full-time, but, you know, maintain the equipment and keep things, keep the lights turned on and things ready to go day in and day out uh, are folded into the Space Force as well. All right, gentlemen. So we've proposed a lot of potential solutions. So hopefully somebody listens to this podcast, takes a lot of notes. And then in five years, where should we be? And how will we know if we're solving the problem or not? Well, think I'll jump in here first. First of all, in the next year or so, we and even on into the future, we need to re- work the requirements side very carefully and build positions that are defensible that will win the arguments inside the Pentagon not Capitol Hill or increase funding appropriately, increase funding for the manpower the Space Force needs to do its missions. Five years from now, we'll still be growing if those requirements are defined correctly. And you, you, you can't create the professionals we need. And as someone once said, you can't create a, a general officer in one year. It takes 24 years to mature that capability. But so this is going to, this is, is going to take more than five years to happen, but it won't happen if we don't get started on defining the requirements and building the case to argue for increased end strength to do the missions that are going to be so necessary for deterrence and national security going forward. You know, I think it's impossible to predict where we'll be in five years. I think a win would be if we deterred war for those five years because we'll be in better shape then. But as we know, the adversary has a vote and the threats are continuously evolving and changing. And the key part of the Space Force is that we have people that go to bed at night, wake up in the morning, and only think about space in the future. And so we'll be continually, this will be a chess game that we'll be reacting, hopefully not always reacting, but being proactive and making sure we stop the next move of our adversaries so that we always maintain the deterrence necessary. So I think The Space Force is going to continually be developing agile responses, new responses, changes in the threats requiring new mission approaches. And so I think, you know, this is the beginning of the journey, and we're just seeing how Space Force has developed new approaches, new architectures, new capabilities to respond to threats. I think that's going to be continuous. I don't think we'll ever stop being in that mode. Yes, looking from my perspective, it'd be a well-trained and uh, capable force with new equipment that's uh, ready to respond to anything that maybe is out ahead of the OTA loop of uh, potential adversaries. Yeah, Slick, I, I think General Chilton and Tav uh, hit it with deterrence, and that is the objective here. Um, but you, you really can't prove a negative. The fact that we don't go to war doesn't mean that we got it right on the Space Force. And so we're going to constantly be looking at the readiness of the service from an equipment standpoint, as well as a personnel standpoint, so that the training and, and, and readiness command uh, has, has a huge role here. But it's also the force structure. And uh, you know, I think success in five years would be, we're not having discussions like this that say, boy, we need to grow the Space Force. We should be having discussions like, hey, we're getting the resources and the personnel we need. Let's make sure we're allocating them appropriately. Um, and, and then ultimately, it's, it's deterrence. It's getting after the threat. And so, as Stu said, if we can get ahead of the OODA loop of our adversaries and they're the ones running around trying to develop new capabilities or make the decision, you know what, the United States, they've got this. We've got to go somewhere else and invest our resources to find some other weakness. I think that's a win. Yeah, all great points. And again, I cannot say thank you enough for all of you taking the time out of your busy schedules to be with us here on the Aerospace Advantage. So General Chilton, uh, General Taverney, Stu, and Charles, thanks so much for being here. A pleasure, Slick. Always good to be with you. Yeah, thank you for the opportunity. I think this is a critical discussion item for the future of space, Space Force, U.S. Space Command, and the U.S. Yeah, thanks, Slick. And uh, as always, I've learned so much from the panelists. So thank you very much. Yeah, thanks, Slick. Thanks to the panelists, and thanks for those listening. Uh, This is an important topic, uh, and we need to make sure that we're getting after it. With that, I'd like to extend a big thank you to our guests for joining in today's discussion. I'd also like to extend a big thank you to our listeners for your continued support and for tuning in to today's show. 
If you like what you've heard today, don't forget to hit that like button and follow or subscribe to the Aerospace Advantage. You can also leave a comment to let us know what you think about our show or areas you think we should explore further. As always, you can join in on the conversation by following the Mitchell Institute on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, or LinkedIn, and you can always find us at mitchellaerospacepower.org. Thanks again for joining us, and we'll see you next time. Stay safe and check six.